Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Welcome back to Earth. <laughs> it it was a hard landing. Yeah, how was your landing? <laughs> tell tell our friends out there what you've been up to. Well, since the last dish, which yes, I'm realizing this is all since the last dish. I've been a busy bee, and you have been at home still on winter break, which mm-hmm. is causing a little bit of a rift in our friendship. I got to be totally honest. I am. Still, as we speak, on winter break for one more week. It's not fair. Um, no, it's good. It's tons of good stuff. I am back. This is uh, the first week of the semester, uh, which is fabulous. I'm actually really excited to be back. I'm very rejuvenated and excited for the semester to come because I had the most fabulous experience at the Meg Quigley Vivaldi competition and symposium. And if you remember the last episode, I was really hoping that would happen because I was dealing with some kind of burnout, fatigue, exhaustion. And Meg Quigley did not disappoint. It's, um, for those who haven't gone to it, I really highly recommend it. Sorry, oboists, you're not invited. I just rolled my eyes so hard. (laughs) But it's a special environment and everyone who goes comments on that because, and I can now say that I've peeked behind the curtain as a member of the executive committee, there's a real intention to create a inclusive environment. And by that, I don't mean like kind of the the typical way that we talk about of like, make sure people are performing diverse repertoire, you know, kind of the surface level way that we can indulge ourselves sometimes. You know, we have real conversations about like, Okay, are all are a variety of career paths represented in this event and are a wide variety of age groups and experience levels represented in this event and you know basically like who are we carving out space for and we intention and you know direct our team to do that in terms of interaction as well like it would be unacceptable for Meg Quigley to be like oh this is a clicky event where, you know, you talk to these people that you already know and you don't meet anyone new and you don't like it's just and that's not even mandated. I think it's just like an organic thing that happens in that particular environment. And I don't know what the special spice is, except that maybe all the people who go intention and purpose to do the same thing. But it's an environment. It's like one of the first places I really felt professionally seen in a way that was validating and I felt like propelled me toward taking different chances artistically and professionally. And so going back to it feels like this really special thing. And now I get to watch that happen for other people. And in terms of, you know, getting geared up for a semester of teaching and whatnot, it was really helpful, very helpful. Sounds amazing. Are there any highlights you want to tell us about? Um, yes, I'm one of the weirdos where, so the kind of crown jewel of the symposium is the Vivaldi competition. And I like to watch every single minute of it. Like I do not get fatigued listening to the exact same 
pieces of music be played 10 times in a row. Uh, I love it. I love juxtaposing different approaches to tone, interpretation, articulation, style, um, and that there are these young, um, the Vivaldi competition at Made Quigley is specifically for young women of the Americas. So these are still students and they're young musicians with fresh ideas. Um, there, I'm gonna shout out one semifinalist, Bridget Fitzgerald, who's currently a student at the University of Texas and at Austin. And there was um, a movement of Noelia Escalzo's Argenta, which was part of the required repertoire, and it was a tango. And at one point, like even as she was playing, she started like tangoing with the bassoon and like she put her leg out and like dragged it in and was doing these dance moves. And I just heard like Brene Brown's voice in my head going, dare greatly. Like it was such a chance taking you know and like so cool and every single person who played was like so inspiring but just the like talent talent bam 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 one two three four five six seven eight nine ten i love it and i always leave the vivaldi competition going i just want to practice like i just want to sit and practice and love the bassoon and love our art and yeah so for me the competition is always the favorite part i will say in the final round they had to play two movements of my dance suite so that was really special (laughs) that is so cool right i was like oh my god were you just like crying the whole time i definitely shed some tears um another maybe special moment i'll shout out is um Asha Klein, who's a student at Curtis, uh, and she ended up being the first place winner. Um, She played the fifth movement of my piece just so beautifully. And she had just also won the Matthew Ruggiero bassoon competition. And Matthew was my teacher. And he had this real emphasis on just like phrasing and beauty. His tagline, if he was a real house husband of Boston, his tagline would be, no one wants to hear the bassoon, they want to hear music. And Asha played music in a way that would be hard for me. Like, oh my God, all these bassoonist eyes are like boring into me. I'm at a competition, high stakes, blah, blah, blah. And I felt like she just played. And as I was listening to her, I thought about him and I went, he would love to hear this right now. And so just kind of her connection to him in terms of her artistry and then playing my piece that was kind of like a special moment um with my teacher who's you know passed on several years ago to kind of feel connected to him in that way was really special I love that so much and now you're back in the grind back in regular life doing regular life stuff I flew back Monday, which was the first day of the semester. So I actually missed the first day of the semester. <laughs> and then Tuesday, I started 8 a.m. RL skills. So hello. Yeah, it's a little bit of a the only down part of all of this inspiration and excitement I have is that I actually haven't had a ton of time to sit down and play like I want to because it's like, oh, while you were gone, you missed 200 emails. And <laughs> You know, you need to like schedule your lessons and this, that, uh-huh. and the other. So, um, yeah, while you were on break, uh, I'm just smiling. <laughs> I'm just living my truth, which is break. Your truth <laughs> is break. Well, I love it. So while I was at Meg Quigley doing all that, how has the journaling and the New Year's resolution to keep up all of those habits, your Pomodoro technique, give us an update on how that's all been going. It's really good. Um, the last couple days, I mean, the semester is sort of sparing you eyes right now. <laughs> so um, the last couple days have been a little less consistent uh, than I have been able to do for the previous two weeks. But um, I have consistently been able to do three to six Pomodoro sessions a day. So that is anywhere from one and a half to three extremely focused hours of practice time every day, which now that I'm 
say it out loud doesn't really sound like that much, but for me, it's a lot. (laughs) Well, no, focused time, I think, is the really important part of Mm -hmm. that. Like, you can do more with an hour of focused time than with four hours of unfocused time. Yeah, it is. It is like I play from minute one to minute 25. Or if I'm not playing, I'm marking in something or, you know what I mean? Like I'm actually making decisions. Yeah. Um, I feel so fortified in my playing right now. Um, in the past, uh, just having a, a full-time job and an adult life with lots of different things pulling at me, pulling me in different directions. I have often felt a little bit just like I'm playing catch up with learning music a lot of the time. No, I totally hear you. And actually that was the source of my burnout is I felt like, okay, learn this piece intensely. And then the second you perform it, there's another piece waiting for you to learn. And by intensely, I don't mean like an intense, like digging in, but just like get it done and get it done fast because you're staring down the performance. And it just felt like, I was getting shuffled along as opposed to, yeah, anyway, I relate. I have felt like that, like, so much, just too much. Uh, and just holding myself accountable in this way has been in, has been motivating mm-hmm. in itself because I really love looking back at my notes from the previous day or a couple days and say, okay, the last time I played this movement, what metronome marking did I end at? And so it just like makes everything so much more efficient. Um, writing down everything that I'm doing, I have like just, I have dived back into the height foundation studies and the gilet, um, scale, like arpeggios and just getting my fingers working and my air working and my embouchure feels really good. And like this, I mean, the read making is just to keep my practicing going really. Mm. You know, so I'm not spending hours and hours and hours making reads. I'm spending my time practicing, which um, my teacher, Eric Olson, always said, practice first and then make reads. Play first because you could spend your entire day making a read. Yeah, for real. Well, not one read. You could spend your entire day like just doing read making and then you're not practicing. So he was like, you know, practice first, make the reads so that you can make the music, not the other way around. Right. Um, So yeah, I've been, I've been, I've been proud of myself for how motivated I have stayed. I feel like I've made a promise to myself that I'm keeping, um, which feels really good. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, keep doing it and my only fear is that once I get into the semester it's all gonna fall apart (laughs) oh my god (laughs) but I just like it so much I'm gonna do everything I can to keep that from happening so keep me accountable yes I I'll keep you accountable um but uh I mean is there anything like interesting on your stand like any cool new pieces oh i'm playing the uh nancy galbraith incantation and i think it's incantation and allegro for Mm -hmm. oboe bassoon and piano which is such a phenomenal piece i can't believe i haven't played it before i'm playing the sonata for oboe and flute by scott robbins it's so cool it's really cool. Um, and I am playing the Floor Trio coming up pretty soon. And I'm playing a bunch of stuff on my recital in February. And I'm playing the Rockberg duo for Oboe and Bassoon. So there's like a lot of music. I've, I've stolen your organization method of the binder <laughs> with the uh, plastic <laughs> page protectors. And this this sucker is thick. Yeah. I've got a lot of rep to learn too, but I, yeah, as opposed to last time we chatted, I'm feeling excited to dig in and excited for the performance opportunities that lie ahead. So let's, let's keep ourselves in the headspace. La, la, la. La, la, la. <laughs>
Hi, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Mary Lindsay Bailey, Assistant Professor of Oboe at the University of Alabama. Roll Tide. Welcome to Double Read Dish. Roll Tide to that. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. (laughs) Um, We like to start by getting to know our guests, by hearing how they came to their instruments. So how did you start playing the oboe? I was one of those people that grew up with absolutely no concept that there was even a thing called the oboe, much less that it would end up being something so valuable to my life. And I did not grow up in a particularly musical family. So my long journey began when I was almost five years old. My mom put me in piano lessons and I really loved it. I thought that it was a lot of fun. When I got into elementary school, my music teacher brought her flute to school one day and played for us. And I thought it was the best thing ever. And I begged and begged and begged for somebody to let me play the flute. And most people said, oh, you're just too young. You're you're too tiny. And they didn't really tell me about curved head joint flutes, but they said, you can just wait until you're in sixth grade. You can do beginning band then. But apparently I was very persistent mm-hmm. and uh, they eventually caved in. So when I was in the third grade, I started playing flute and I really loved it. I thought that it was wonderful and studied for a couple of years until I got to middle school band. And then my band director on the first day said, would you like to play the oboe? And I said, what is the oboe? And he said, well, it's a woodwind instrument. It's different from the flute and there's not many of them, but not many people play it. And you've played flute for so long that you're probably going to be bored sitting in beginning band. And even if you're in eighth grade band, you've been playing flute long enough that you're probably still going to be bored. So take it home for the weekend and try it out. And he convinced me maybe a little to, um, well, I don't know what the right word is, but a little bit too suspiciously because he gave me the read to take home and didn't soak it or anything, made a sound on it right away. He said, oh, nobody can make a sound on a completely dry read. You must be meant to play the oboe. And so I went home that weekend and I thought, oh my goodness, I am super good at the oboe and I don't even know what the fingerings are. (laughs) (laughs) And so I I took it home and I played around with it and initially made the deal that I'd play oboe for a year and kind of see how it went. And if I didn't like it, I would switch back to flute by the time I got to seventh grade. And honestly... It was really nice being a little bit individual and unique. I got to go to an audition for my all-county band in sixth grade. I think there was another oboe player there because, again, there just wasn't many of us. And I kind of liked the idea of doing something a little bit different. And the competition was different than it was on flute. I had no idea what was going to be coming down the road later on with, with reeds and everything. And so, again... 
I think you tricked me a little bit with the, you can make a sound on a dry read. You must be pretty good at it. But uh, (laughs) I I came to it that way and I stuck with it because it was fun. It didn't really seem as hard as people had been telling me it was. And it was just nice to be able to go do things like honor bands and festivals and not be standing outside of an audition room for an hour while 40 other people were auditioning ahead of you. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I came to about it. It was a, a really circuitous road with no real, I heard the oboe and it was magical, just sort of a, I fell into it and it kind of worked out pretty well for me. When did you decide to make it your career? I don't really know the answer. I thought about being a band director when I got to high school. And I think a lot of people kind of go that route. Band was fun. And I loved going to the competitions and and meeting other people. And I thought, maybe I want to be a band director. And then when I was a junior in high school, I started thinking a little bit differently. I started to realize I didn't want to do marching band. And I was going to be a band director. I'd, I'd probably have to run a marching band or at least be involved with it. And the summer after my junior year, I went to Brevard for the summer and met all these people from all over who were really good at their instruments and had clear paths ahead of them for wanting to go into the performance world. And that was the first time I really started thinking, I think really seriously that you could do something as an oboist, as opposed to just like a a high school band director. And then I started thinking a little bit more differently about my trajectory. I didn't necessarily know that I wanted to be a college teacher, but I did know that I wanted to be a professional oboist in some capacity. So how did you go about embarking, especially not knowing necessarily the exact path that you wanted to take, um, choosing a college, choosing a teacher, planning your next steps? Uh, If we have a listener right now who's like, yeah, same, I know I want the oboe forever, but I don't know what that looks like. And I don't know how to formulate my next steps. Kind of talk to us through that point in your life and maybe any advice you have for young people in a similar scenario. Yeah, I was really fortunate that I had a wonderful high school oboe teacher who walked me through a lot of the expectations of what it would be like to be a music major and what a career could potentially look like. So first thing is to have somebody that has been through it and that is trustworthy and reliable for you, whether it is a teacher, whether it is um, a, a music director at your your church or house of worship or a community leader, somebody that's going to give you a real honest assessment and who you value their opinion. The next thing was to think about places that had programs that had the areas that I was interested in and look into them a little bit more, get to know uh, who was the professor there and talk with my teacher about kind of what it would be like to study with them and if possible to go to the campuses and meet with the professors because that gives you a, a very different perspective of what it would really be like to go there. And especially now that we're in uh, a semi-post-COVID era where we can Zoom, it's a little bit easier to get to know people and get to have a little bit more firsthand feeling of what it's like to work with somebody. So an email just to say, hello, I'm interested in your school. I would love to meet with you, even if it's not for a lesson, just to talk about your program. I think that's worth doing a little bit of legwork on your side can go a long way on on choosing a place that feels good and really kind of getting to know what's out there. Yeah. Would you talk us through your educational journey and how you got to the University of Alabama? Absolutely. So I grew up in South Carolina. I grew up outside of Charleston in a little town called Monk's Corner, which Nobody has really heard of unless you're from South Carolina. So I always had to claim Charleston as my hometown. And I looked around at a lot of schools and ultimately I ended up deciding to go to the University of South Carolina for my undergrad. 
And it was mainly because I had been there so many times and I was comfortable with it. I had some friends that I knew from other schools in South Carolina that had gone there the year before and other people that I knew from my graduating year that were going that I respected as musicians and thought that it would be a pretty good fit. I decided to major in music education because honestly, I was worried about getting a performance degree and then not being able to get a job or, or move on to the next step. So if nothing else, I could be the band director that I, I knew I could be and initially wanted to be. Um, and I think that was probably a really good step for me in many ways, because it gave me a chance to better understand how other instruments worked not just how to play with them, but actually physically what it's like to play a clarinet versus what it's like to play a saxophone or an oboe. And I was very active in performing while I was there. So even though I was majoring in music education, I was able to get what we called a performer certificate, which was sort of like majoring in performance and music ed at the same time, but not quite the same. So a little bit of fewer coursework, but the same performance requirements of recitals and ensembles. So I played in orchestra. I played in band. I played in marching band my first two years. I played in a chamber ensemble. I played for operas. I played for anything that would come up. I played for local churches. I got as much experience as I could because I wanted to play my oboe first and foremost, but I wanted a lot of different experiences that were going to prepare me for the future ahead. So it meant a really, really long day every day for most of the time that I was there, but it was really helpful for being able to have the experience of playing all different types of musics in all different types of settings. Um, while I was there, I was also lucky to do a semester abroad. So I spent my spring semester of my junior year in London and did a program with King's College London and the Royal Academy of Music, where I would take my academic classes at King's and then I would take lessons with Tess Miller from the Royal Academy of Music. So if I had been somewhere else, I may not have been as likely to have the flexibility of doing a study abroad, but I was really fortunate to be able to do it. I think it was one of the best things I could have done for myself. It really opened my eyes to what was out there. I think sometimes when we're going through school or even just our day-to-day lives, we can kind of forget what else is out there. But I had the opportunity to meet people who said they were just playing their instruments for fun or weren't all that serious, but really quite amazing. And then the students at the um, Royal Academy were just absolutely knockout players. It was so inspiring to be there and kind of feel a little bit like, you know, I was peering in on how things work in the rest of the world. So I ended up graduating just a little bit later because I did my semester abroad um, so I ended up graduating in, in December rather than spring, which is traditional, but I was fortunate enough to be able to then start right after I finished at South Carolina at the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, because there just happened to be uh, a spot available and I happened to be able to fill it at that, that moment in time, which is really rare, but it seemed like the heavens just kind of aligned for me to be able to go there. Um, so I, I did my master's and I stayed on for my doctorate at Cincinnati with Mark Ostich and loved every moment of it. And it was really kind of sad that my time had to come to an end. But while I was there, I was offered the opportunity to play in the Shenzhen Symphony Orchestra in Shenzhen, China, and thought, well, I'm going to finish all my classes and I'm not really sure what else I'm, I'm going to do just after this. I can keep trying to take auditions or I can say yes to this really exciting opportunity to play professionally in a foreign country. And so I took it. I went to Shenzhen in 2006 and I stayed there for about, about nine months playing with the orchestra. And it was just an amazing opportunity. I kind of uh, equate it to being in like the new world program or Chicago Civic where you're getting such high intensity training. I, I kind of figured I wasn't going to live there long term and I'd come back to the States at some point. So I had a little bit of a, an open mind going into it, but I learned so much more there. 
perhaps than I learned while I was in school because there was nobody to help me. There was nobody to tell me that my reads were bad, except for when the concert master didn't like my pitch or if I didn't mm-hmm. blend with the the other um uh, orchestra members. So it was probably one of the best things I could have done for myself. And I think the timing was nice from going to Cincinnati, but also being open to the opportunity. There were some other people who had been contacted to go and they, they decided they didn't want to, that they wanted to stay in Cincinnati instead. But I figured I couldn't say no. There was a lot of things that I had done in the past, but I hadn't done that. And how many times do you get the opportunity to to go play in an orchestra in a foreign country and get paid to do it. So it was great. Um, but I did decide that I didn't want to stay there. And so after nine months, I came back to the States and I, I took some auditions and um, applied for some college jobs and eventually was hired to be the um, instructor or lecturer in oboe at Mesa State College in Grand Junction, Colorado, which is now known as Colorado Mesa. They changed the name while I was out there. And I taught there for seven years. I taught oboe. I taught music appreciation. I taught music history. I coached chamber music. Basically, it was a lot like what I had experienced when I was in college, having a lot of um, different areas and different expectations that it, it wasn't just you teach the oboe and you go home, but you you do other things. Um, and so that was tiring and exhausting because it made me have to remember all my music history training. It made me think about how to pace out classes, how to engage students who weren't music majors, who I hadn't been around in years. You know, I hadn't taken a general education class in a long time, but to be teaching music to students who were majoring in other areas and just needed their fine arts credit, it really kind of made me think a lot about music, how we relate to it, how others relate to it, how we can be better performers if we know really kind of who our audience is and give them a chance to want to go to concerts and be engaged. Um, So I was, I was there for a long time. It was a really great opportunity. I really do miss Western Colorado, but I was fortunate to be hired at Moorhead State um, in Moorhead, Kentucky. And I taught there for a year before coming to the University of Alabama and I've been here now in Tuscaloosa since 2016. So a long, very winding road with many twists and turns and things that I, I wouldn't have expected when I was 17 going off to college. But I feel that every step along the way really prepared me to be where I am now. Well, I have I have a question, but first I have to go backwards a little bit and tell you that I know Monk's Corner. Oh, my gosh. Because really? I am a big fan of the Bravo show Southern Charm. Uh, and <laughs> the main okay. uh, kind of antagonist is named Catherine Calhoun Dennis, and her family yeah. is from Monk's Corner. <laughs> That's right. I forgot about that. I completely forgot about that. Yeah. She sneaks it into almost every episode. Um, okay. Back to. Oboe and off of Bravo. Um, So you did a semester abroad in London. You worked for nine months in China. And though Mm -hmm. I'm a bassoonist, over the course of doing this podcast, I've learned that um, America versus Europe and other international things is kind of, uh, there's different schools, I guess, or approaches for the oboe. Mm -hmm. And so I would be curious in knowing you know, how do you, how did those experiences kind of differ and did they inform when you returned to kind of an American approach of oboe playing? Do you feel like there's aspects of that uh, multidimensionality that you incorporate intentionally into your playing? Just, I know it's a big question, but it's Mm kind of conceptual. And I'd also love to hear about reads. Oh yeah. Um, I I wish I could give you a more definitive answer on reads, but I'm not going to be able to give you much of one, um, mainly because I I had no read help in any of my situations abroad. When I was in London, uh, my teacher said at our very first lesson, she said, you make American reads. We're not even going to do that. We are not doing reads at all because her system was so different. And the amount of time and effort it would have taken to try to make a, a British style read would have just 
eaten up all of our time. We wouldn't have been able to do any one semester. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I didn't even, um, begin lessons with her until a little bit later in the semester. I think it was the end of January by the time we got going with them and finished around end of April, beginning of May. So very limited time. And the things that we worked on instead were so much more valuable. She was a big proponent of Alexander ideas of sort of using the body more effectively and efficiently. And, and that was pretty transformational in terms of my projection and my sound. So reads were largely, I was left up to my own devices. I learned the basics of read making when I was at Brevard, but my high school teacher wasn't going to make reads anymore. He told me flat out, he's like, you, you'll learn that when you go to college. I did it. I don't like doing it. I'm, we're not going to bother with it. So it was always a more musical approach. Um, same thing in China. My players were not American style people. They were more European influence. So the reads were a little bit more kind of, uh, I'm on my own and figure it out that way. So I think there are probably some things that I adapted in my read making without realizing it. But honestly, at the same time, I was such a terrible read maker going through all of it that if I were to still have any of the reads and look back at them, I'd probably be fascinated that I could make any sound out of it in the first place. <laughs> they, were, <laughs> they were really, really terrible. So I think a lot of what I did in terms of the absorption of playing with so many different people was probably more physical than it really was um, read influenced. I have always really been um, taken with the way that British players sound. I think that they have such beautiful tones. And I think I always kind of have that pinnacle idea in my mind when I'm trying to make a, an oboe sound. Uh, like For example, my favorite recording perhaps of all time is Jonathan Small's version of the Vaughn Williams concerto that I probably wore that CD out. I don't even know if it still plays anymore. I've played it so many times but just a, a little bit of a different idea and then figuring out how to do it with the the mouth and the the body rather than doing it with the reeds. There's probably, again, something in the reed making that if we were going to sit down and analyze it as similar to what I picked up over time is definitely not a more traditional American style, but it seems to get the job done pretty well. That's um, all we need. We yeah. just needed to get the job done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, we don't get any prizes for the reads. They just have to play. <laughs> I would love to know about um, your approach to teaching. What, if you had a student, you know, if if we were to pick up your next student who graduated and say, what was the number one thing you learned from Dr. Bailey? What would you want it to be? number one thing I don't know that's kind of a it's an interesting question there's some there are lots of different things that I do with them at the end of the day I want them to be able to be independent I want them to not really feel like they they need another teacher that their ideas are so developed and both unique to themselves but well informed that they can be the player that they want to be I feel like I try hard to look for what students want in their playing and their sounds. I don't change a whole lot about people's tones. I don't change a whole lot with embouchures unless there's a real need to do either one, because I feel that everybody's sound is so unique to them. Like their, their tone quality is, is so different. You know, we can, we can go around the table at the IDRS convention and try different oboes and we're all pretty much going to sound the same on, on them, but everybody's going to sound a little bit different just because of, of who they are and and how they play. So I I do technique stuff. I do um, all the standard things. I want them to feel like their voice is unique and I make my students sing a lot. I try to get them to get the oboe out of the way and really think about their literal voice and how they're using it to amplify their oboe voice going forward. So I don't know that singing is necessarily what I would say I want them to remember me for, but I want them to feel that they were 
they were encouraged to explore their own ideas and to find their own oboe voice, both in the the literal and the figurative aspects. That's wonderful. Can we talk gear? Um, so kind of a two-parter. Um, can we hear about the instrument that you play on and like how it can, well, yeah, I'll just do a two-parter. Let's start with, uh, can we hear about the instrument that you play on and how you chose it, how it came to find you? Yes. So I play on a Luray Royale. It is um, a fairly older instrument by most people's standards. I got it in 2009. Um, it's an H series, which they don't, I don't think Luray is even making those anymore because they have made much better advancements since then. So I'm kind of like the person that's driving their car until it dies. I'm kind of driving my Yobo <laughs> until it dies, but it's just such a great instrument. I just love it. And I haven't found one yet that I like as much as the one that I have. And I I've been tempted a couple of times, but I haven't been willing to pull the trigger. So that means that it's, it's probably still doing pretty well. Um, I came about it mainly because I had played out my previous oboe, which was a Luray standard bore oboe um, all over. I had played it. I got it right before I went to college. So I played it all through undergrad, all through my grad degrees, all through working in China and trying to find a new job and through most of a year um, in my first position. And so it really was time to get one. And I'm kind of at that place now with an instrument, honestly, where I kind of need a new one, but I just can't get rid of this one. Um, but I love it. And there are lots of great instruments out there. And I've thought many times about switching to something else, but I don't know, there's something about it and, and Luray in general, that just kind of feels homey to me. It might be that I'm just so used to it. I'm sure if I had a different instrument for a while and got to know it better, it would probably feel like home too. But right now my, my H series Royale Luray is, is what I love. Um, I have a Laubin English horn, which is mm. real, real old. It's from the sixties and it needs, but iron. those just keep yeah. getting better. I do. It's good. I love it. I, I feel like I walked into it with just the most uh, serendipitous experience. I found it while I was searching online right after I got to Cincinnati. I had literally just been telling my parents like the day before that I probably need to get my own English horn. It's probably time. I said, okay, we'll start looking. I came back the next day and I was like, I found this great instrument. And <laughs> I, I told them when it was made and they're like, you want to buy it? An English horn from the 1960s. I said, yes, I do. But it's a Laubin. <laughs> a bit, I know. So I just, I played well. It had some cracks in the tone holes um, up near the chill keys. And I had to send it back to get repaired even before I could play on it. But it was so great. And it it's, it's in need of some, some love and attention now. So I do need to send it back. But I just love it. I can play on reeds that are are really flexible and light, and it just kind of does all the work for me. Which is also one of the things I like about my Luray Royale is it's a it's a big instrument, so I can make reeds that I just kind of blow at them, and the oboe kind of balances it out for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be why it feels so homey to me when I come back to it because I've kind of made that style of read. But honestly, I don't really want to change things at this point. I feel like I worked really hard to find something that feels comfortable and sounds good. And I can be expressive with that. I don't necessarily want to change it if I don't have to. So I'll just keep repairing them and, and hopefully they'll last me <laughs> a lot longer. <laughs> and it's environmentally friendly. That's right. That's right. I am. I'm helping to contribute to the salvation of the forests instead of the destruction of them. That's right. So my second part of the gear question is about reeds. Can we hear what gouger you use? What staples? What, you know, read habits, read advice. Talk to us about your setup and uh, routine. Yeah. Um, I will preface this with, I still consider myself to be a bad reed maker, even though I have made (laughs) reeds for so many years and I've even sold reeds commercially and people seem to enjoy them enough to have continued buying them. Uh, I, 
I, I, I think that if we were going to sit down and make reads together, we'd probably be like, what in the world are you doing? How do you make that work? And my basic goal at the end of the day, of the day is to read the plays and it sounds pretty good and has all of its parts. Um, but I don't measure things out as definitively as like your tip has to be exactly this long. I do tell my students that I do tell them, you know, your tip should be about three to four millimeters long. Your heart should be about this long. But for my own reads, I'm a little bit more, um, uh, vague about it each time I go about it, but I, I use an RDG one shape, which I like a lot. I like something that's a little bit on the wider side, but not super wide. I just like the way that the cane feels in my mouth with a slightly more medium wide shape, the narrower ones. I just kind of feel like I'm playing on a toothpick rather than I'm playing on a piece of cane. So I like, I like the bigger feel in my, in my embouchure. Um, I use Glotan staples, they seem to work really well with my shaper and my oboe. Um, I usually use a Ross gouging machine. I probably need to send mine up for updating. I'm kind of at the point in my life right now where I'm just buying gouged cane because I just don't have time to sit down and process things as much. But I've, I've used the Ross since I was in um, graduate school. I learned initially on an RDG um, but I, I like the Ross a lot because it vibrates right away. And if I want to put in some barriers, then I can put in the barriers that I want to have. Um, I don't feel like I have to scrape the reed to get it to play. So usually Ross gouge on an RDG shape with Glotan staples and whatever thread I'm in the mood for that day. Um, I like more the solid colors than the variegated ones. And that's only because I sometimes just don't like one color that's in the variegation. And so then I'm, I don't like the whole school. So just limit <laughs> it to the one, <laughs> to the one color. And then I'm pretty good to go after that. Uh, but uh, the same idea, I've, I've tried everything. I've tried all kinds of staples. I did Chudnail staples for a long time. I have done, um, the, the, I can't remember the kind of thing. They're Guaco staples. And when they had the little wood insert on in them mm. too. And for a while I was like, this is it. I found it. And then I, I couldn't use them when I was selling reads because I was not going to pay that much for a staple that I was going to sell off. So I went back to the, the cork staples and now I'm just set in my ways. And that's what I'm using until somebody can really convince me otherwise to change it. Um, but I feel like that's a, it's a pretty, not overly fancy approach. I know I'm not the only person out there that uses the RDG one, but I like it. Not the only person out there that uses the Glutan staples, but I just like them as well. And at the end of the day, we got to use what feels best for us. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of my read making comes from um, what was described to me as the semi-stable approach, a mm-hmm. read that will hold itself together pretty well, but has enough flexibility in it for the expression that you want to still be there. So my tips tend to be more transitioned into the heart than they are more ledged. And my tips as a result may end up being just a little bit thicker than some other people's would be a little bit thinner. My hearts tend to be a little bit more, um, longer and a little bit shallower than other hearts that are a little bit more puffy feeling. I don't put in a lot of windows in my reads. I'll put windows in enough for there to be three definite sections, but I I don't scrape in really deep windows. Mine are, they're more kind of like, um, uh, half windows, I guess, rather than a full window. It's because I, I like the feeling of the, of the window. I like it in the embouchure. I like for what it does with the high range and the stability, but I, I don't like when it gets to be dug out because then I feel like my reads being stifled. I feel like it's being choked off somehow. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at my read, it, again, it's going to have all three parts. It's going to be pretty clear when you look at it at the blade face on, you don't necessarily see it as defined. It looks kind of like there's some ambiguity all over, but in the backlight, it's there. And in the profile view, it's there, but that gives me something that feels both reliable and flexible enough that I can, I can do what I want when I think I need to do something. That's really fascinating. I heard, uh, when we talked to Jonathan Fisher, he said that, um, 
he felt that there were two different approaches. There was the coming from flexibility and then there's coming from stability. So Mm -hmm. I I like this in between that you're talking about. Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah, you're having everything at the same time. Um, I, I feel like I just, I can't live as comfortably in just one of them. I have to visit both of them every so often. Mm-hmm. Um, so since you have experience being a principal oboist when you were playing in China and mm-hmm. you are the principal oboist of the Tuscaloosa Symphony, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on auditioning and um, what it takes to be a good principal oboist or dare we say a great principal oboist? I think that is a very subjective question because everybody's <laughs> going to do it a little bit differently. You know, I mean, you think about all the people who sat in principal chairs in the past and a lot of them were fantastic, but a lot of them did things really differently. Um, so I don't know that there's a, there's necessarily a right or wrong answer, but I think one of the most important things is reliability with your pitch, because if you're not reliable with your pitch, nobody's going to trust you. The concert master is not going to take your A. I have played in enough orchestras where the brass don't even want to take my A to know that if I have any sense of wiggle room to it, then I've lost the whole orchestra. So I think pitch is probably one of the most important things. I think that's something that when you're listening to an audition or you're preparing for an audition that we think about, but I don't think we think about it from how it's being perceived outside of our our heads where the the sound is vibrating. The the pitch is not only just like a matter of of playing high and low with the tuner, but it's also a matter of bright and dark as well. Um, I had a student this morning, actually, who brought in a read that played really warm and dark, and he was convinced that it was going to play flat with the tuner, and it didn't. It played right in tune because he was getting so many more of the lower um, the lower partials of the sound that it convinced his ear that he was playing on the flat side. So something like that, I wouldn't take that into the orchestra per se, because I don't feel like the rest of the ensemble would trust me. They would probably be swayed by the same thing and thinking that it was flat because it was such a different sound than what they're used to. So reliability of pitch in your sound and also in, in the intonation, I think is pretty important. You know, when you go into an ensemble and your clarinetist sounds different than they did the day before, you're going to be a little suspicious and wonder what's going on with them. The same thing is true for us as well. Um, Rhythm is another important thing. And if you're not playing in time, nobody's going to want to play with you. We do have some flexibility, I think, particularly with our solo playing in the principal chair, but we can't be, we can't just be completely, um, ignorant of the tempos that are out there and the expectations of what the rest of the ensemble has to do with us. Those two things, I think for preparation and playing are perhaps the most important, but from a personal level, I think being a good colleague goes a really, really long way because there are a lot of talented players out there and a lot of players that can play circles around anybody else, but might not necessarily be a person you want to sit in a chair next to. So being a good colleague, being respectful, if you're taking um, a gig that is not with your home orchestra or even with people that you know, don't show up and start playing all your excerpts. You just show up and play some long tones and check your articulation, do things that are not trying to call the spotlight and attention to you, especially as a principal player, that spotlight and attention is going to be on you soon enough and you don't need to try to wow people on things that might actually turn around and demonstrate that you can't do it in the first place. So being, I think a good colleague is important, being thoughtful and respectful, looking around for who you're playing with. If I'm playing a part that is doubled in the cellos, I'm going to try to look over at the cello section and follow their bows I'm going to do the same thing with the violins. If I'm playing a two line with them, because while the conductor is important, at the end of the day, I've got to play with my players. I've got to make it a large chamber experience that just happens to be an orchestral setting as well. Know the parts, know who's the dominant part, know who you're playing with. Um, 
I think some really kind of just, I think that feels kind of basic, but perhaps it's not, um, watch your conductor as well. And another thing that seems obvious, but don't get lost in your part. Don't get lost in sitting around and counting and not being aware of what's going on around you. Can we hear a bit about your experience playing in the 2404 World Orchestra where um, you were playing in Armenia? And that just sounds so interesting. I'd love to hear about that experience. Yeah. So that was organized by the government of Armenia for the commemoration of the Armenian genocide, the centenary of it. I was contacted through one of my former colleagues from when I played in China, who had ended up moving to live partial time in Armenia and part of the time um, back in, uh, in Russia. And he contacted me because the government was trying to get people from around the world to come and mark the importance of of remembering the genocide. It was only just recently that the United States even recognized it officially that it happened. And it's always been kind of like a, it happened, but we don't talk about it. Um, and honestly, I hadn't really heard of it prior to that either, which is a bit embarrassing for me in my knowledge of history, but it seemed like it was a legitimate thing. It seemed like it was going to be a kind of once in a lifetime opportunity. There's not many times that I have have sat down and thought about you know places that I would I would go on a you know a whim but Armenia had honestly kind of been a place that it was always in the back of the mind because as as silly as this sounds when I was in high school I remember playing the Alfred Reed piece Armenian dances and thinking when I was in 10th grade that that was a fantastic piece there's this country called Armenia I'd love to go there someday and so years later when I had the opportunity to go to Armenia, I thought, wow, this is, this is great. I, I'm going to go do it. Absolutely. Um, and I got to reconnect with a couple of my former colleagues from Shenzhen while I was there. But it was it was a week of playing in an orchestra with people from all over the world who were there, in a sense, to to play in the orchestra and get to know everybody, but to really just become aware of the pain and the suffering that the Armenians suffered. And we were, we were taken around the countryside to some important places that um, were important to Armenian Christianity and to um, pre-Christianity days to basically get a sense of how old the country was. We were taken to the Holocaust Memorial, which was incredibly poignant. It was, it is shaped like, a um an inkwell with a pen that would be in there to symbolize that the um the massacre began with the the people of knowledge and education and killing off the um the intellectuals was was marked with this and it was it was very painful and you saw the whole time that we were there just the the suffering you know this is a hundred years later but these were people's grandparents and great grandparents. And there was a real semblance of a youthful country because they had lost so many people um, that they basically had to rebuild their country. And a lot of people have moved all over the world and the diaspora of the Armenians. Um, so it was really powerful. Um, so it it was not something that I necessarily sought out. I was invited to do it. And I thought this is a great opportunity. It, it really made a lasting impact on me. And then a, a couple of years later, I was invited back to do a sort of similar thing, but not, not in, um, as memorial of the situation. I was invited back to play for a, um, a technology conference. And I thought I liked my experience so much the first time around, they were wonderful people. It was such a, a warm and welcoming country. I'd love to go back. And so I was actually fortunate to go twice on, on two different occasions to somewhere that again, I, I probably wouldn't have, have realistically gone otherwise. That's amazing. Yeah. I've been really lucky. Again, I think if you can say yes to all kinds of opportunities, then, I mean, it was just kind of build on, on 
where your future is going to go. I don't know what's going to happen to me in 10 years, but I'm sure that somehow some of the people or things that I've done in the past are going to influence what happens when ahead. You have shared so many amazing memories with us. Mm -hmm. Um, They've all been very poignant and influential in your life. Are there any maybe funny or embarrassing memories that you would like to share of things that have happened to you with the oboe or on stage? Um, I mean, there's always water. I don't, I haven't, I fortunately haven't had any real dire problems. Like I hit my reed on my teeth or anything like that, which has been good. I haven't gotten a swab stuck. I'm very careful about swabbing from the top down. So I don't, I don't get anything stuck. Oh, you swab from the top down. I swab from the top down. That's smart. Yeah. That's a, that's a Carlos trick. He instilled that in me every time that I, I visit his table or, or go to get my oboe repaired. I always swab down because I remember being at something, I think it was like a Larray day at CCM a long time ago. Um, he, he taught us to swab down from the top so that the swab wouldn't get stuck. And also so that she pulled the water down instead of pulling it back up. So I always do that. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to think if there's like, the only thing that's coming to my mind, and this isn't even an onstage thing. This is going like way back in time to sixth grade beginning band. Um, I went to my, my very first all County band audition and, um, I was warming up in the big gym where everybody else was warming up and um, the keys on the bottom of my oboe just fell off. Ah! It just fell off because one of the pin screws had had come out. And so everything with my, um, my C sharp key and below was just gone. It just fell off. So fortunately there was a repair person who could put it back together um, and save me for being able to still audition that was the one where there was me and another person auditioned for that for that band. Um, it was my first audition, so oh I kind of <laughs> I kind of had the oboes or something like, else. Oh, I know it was the school's oboe, and I, I definitely got my own oboe the next year. <laughs> that was like, <laughs> that was a pretty hard um, a pretty hard call into um, or not a hard call, an easy call for getting a new instrument. Um, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I've had, I had swabs stuck when I was in high school and kind of the same thing. I, I ended up just being really, really careful, but anything on stage, anything really embarrassing on stage that's happened. I don't know. I guess maybe the closest thing that I can think of is when I went to China, I didn't realize that the orchestra played at 442 because <laughs> I mean, nobody told me and I just was young and naive and just the same. You just made your reads like you make my reads. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the concert master after, um, a couple of days eventually kind of like passed the word back that I needed to play the right pitch, which then I, I did, but he gave me so many dirty looks going into those few days before I was eventually told that I was playing in the wrong intonation or the wrong, um, frequency. Um, and then he always gave me dirty looks after that. So again, he never trusted me. He never trusted my A. Um, so words of wisdom. Know what pitch you're supposed to play and do your best to play it. <laughs> um, what advice do you have for young musicians who aspire to have a career like yours? I guess the best advice is, I know this sounds terrible, but just say yes to everything. You don't know what gig is going to open up another door for you. You don't know what playing in another ensemble in your school is going to do for you. You don't know what connections are going to make. You don't know what repertoire you're going to play that's somehow going to make a difference in your, in your life going forward. Pieces that you've never heard that then you just can't get enough of. If nothing else, you get to hear and play some pretty great music. I think playing a variety of things as well is important, not just playing orchestral music, you know, play, play band music, play jazz. If you, if you can bring yourself to improvise, that's great. If not, just get to know another musical language, get to play extended techniques, even if it's just a couple of multiphonics and a piece, it, it makes a big difference. And expanding your your musical palette of what you're 
um, of what your interests are, things that you didn't know that you would be interested in. Um, we're really lucky if people ask us to do something as musicians. I think that we get a little bit blindsided from the day to day. You know, as a student, it's, oh my gosh, I have another rehearsal. I have to do my theory homework. I still have to do my English paper. I still have to do, but if, if somebody's asking you to play, I mean, they're putting some not only value into what you do, but they're, they're putting some faith into you as well that you're going to show up and do it. So say yes to things. Don't, don't say, no, I'm too busy. Unless you really are too busy. then that's a different story. But most of us, I think that we just, I think we're a little bit too choosy in what we do. And I think we put too many limits on the experiences that are waiting for us to happen because we think that they're not going to be valuable. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Mary Lindsay. This is just, you're so lovely and we appreciate it so much. Well, this has been so much fun. I, again, I'm really just, I feel like I've made it to the big times being on the double read dish. (laughs) I'm not going to (laughs) lie. We hope you enjoyed that episode and interview. And as always, if you wouldn't mind rate and reviewing on iTunes and wherever you listen, that would be fabulous. Come join us on social media. We talk about fun stuff and, you know, dish there. So don't forget to touch base. And um, on the next episode, who are we going to be chatting with? Galit. We have the one and only Scott Poole, Associate Professor of Music at Texas A&M Corpus Christi. Jackie, let's end this third parade. Go make reads. And have a snack. Yes.